God loves you. <laughs> that could be the end of the message right there. That's just so good. God loves you. I mean, it's just it's beautiful to understand and to, to grasp to a greater degree the love of God. And right now we're in a section in the book of Romans where I don't know we, that we might first describe this as a section describing the love of God because it really is a section describing the wrath of God. Uh, 118, Romans 118, Paul says, here's why we need to be saved. It's this, the wrath of God has been revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. So God's wrath is real. God's anger is real against ungodliness and against unrighteousness. But it flows from his love. He looks upon us if he didn't love us, he would say, I don't care about your sin. I'm apathetic towards it because I don't really want to have anything to do with you. But because he so wants to have something to do with us, he, he is angry about sin because sin separates us from him. So the love of God is very strong. So I hope that as we're going through these sections of Romans, because a couple of weeks ago we saw Paul describing immoral mankind and you know a certain portion of society or culture or nations that have just so suppressed the truth of God and wandered away from the truth of God that they've been given up to all forms of immorality, sexual immorality, sexual perversion, and then the approval of those things. Uh, publicly. And then also last week we saw him declaring that people who are moral and think that they're pretty good and, and all of that. And then today we'll see the religious person who has forms and ceremonies and religious uh, experiences that they hold on to. The, the message is the same. Every single category needs the blood of Jesus Christ. Every single person needs to be saved purely and solely and exclusively through the, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of uh, Calvary. No man can save himself. There's no religious thing that you can do to save yourself. We must be saved by God, and we're saved by God by believing in the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we could not have lived, that he died the death that we should have died, and that he rose from the dead, that whoever would believe in him, trust in him, and in his life and righteousness would be saved from the wrath of God, saved from their sin, and receive the righteousness of God, or the righteousness of Christ, into their own bodies, that God would see them as he sees his own uh, son. All right, so that's the way in which uh, we are saved. It's by faith, grace alone, faith alone, and that's, this is the way it occurs. All right, so that leads us to today and looking at, like I had already hinted at, the religious person. All right, we've seen the immoral world needs the gospel, the moral world needs the gospel, but the religious world, God loves religious people also, and uh, there's a deep need for the message of the gospel to be received amongst religious men. Now, in Paul's mind, the religious person, as far as he saw and, and the vision that he had, he was looking at the Roman world on one hand when he saw immoral mankind, but when he thought of the religious mankind, as an ex-Pharisee and an ex-Rabbi and a man who had been steeped in Judaism, he thought of the nation of Israel and he thought in very Jewish kind of terms. And so that's the way that this whole section is going to be colored. But as we're going through it, I'm sure there will be many things about the Jewish religious man 
that as we go through it, you're going to say, hey, that sounds familiar. This sounds very religious, not just Jewish religious, but maybe even a, a religious look that even has the name of Christ attached to it. So it kind of a Christian version of religiosity. And Paul is going to condemn all of it and say all of anybody who's in this needs the gospel so desperately. God loves us. He cares for us, but he wants this kind of person to be saved from this life that they are stuck uh, in. So really, we're just going to see three things. And the first is that religion, what it usually leads towards or what it breeds is hypocrisy which is a real dangerous thing. Secondly, we're going to see that it breeds a mistrust. Instead of trusting Jesus and the cross, there's a trust in ceremony, religious ceremonies. And then thirdly, we're actually going to see that religion actually doesn't breed anything real with God. It actually breeds an unbelief in God and a lack of trust in God. So we want to believe in God, we want to trust God, and we want to be obedient to God, amen? But religion actually produces the exact uh, opposite. So let's see what the Lord has to say about the religious man uh, here in verse 17, and then we're going to go through chapter 3, verse uh, 8. Let's look at this together. First of all, verse 17, Paul returns to his kind of, not argumentative in a bad way, but just kind of conversing with a theoretical person when he says, but if you, verse 17, call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and verse 19, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So there's a lot of ifs uh, there, and I'm just going to pause at that point after verse 20 in Paul's sentence because it keeps on going. But I want to look at a couple of things there in verse 17 through uh, verse 20. First of all, he looks at the religious Jew and one of the things that they celebrated was, verse 17 and 18, all of the perceived benefits that they had from being God's people. I mean, Paul just kind of lists them out there in verse 17 and 18. There was the benefit of being known as an Israelite, called a Jew. Now, that was a good thing, right? I mean, God had looked at Abraham and confirmed the call to Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, had created a nation that was to bring honor and glory to his name, a chosen nation, a chosen people. They were to be a light to the Gentile world. That's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. But all of these elements, all of them are good. They, they had the law. They, they had the Bible. They had the Old Testament. They had God. They had a covenant with God. They knew his will, verse 18. They could approve what was excellent. They knew about good doctrine and what is true and what is false. And they were able to be instructed from the law. All of these things were good. But in the Jewish mind, it had come to a place during Paul's day where these weren't benefits of their salvation. These were things that they leaned on for their salvation. In other words, instead of saying, I know the Lord, and I love the Lord, and I've been saved by the Lord, and now, thank God, he's given me his word to be able to study and to grow in him and to know him, how beautiful. Instead of saying that, they would have said in Paul's day, I know his word, I have the Bible, therefore I am saved. 
So we all confess and realize that this, these are not things that can lead to salvation, just stuff that you know uh, and concepts that you understand. You have to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, as I've been saying. So these were some of the benefits that they thought would lead to their salvation. Not only that, but they thought that they were lights. Not just that they had benefits, but they thought that they were totally just lights to the world, and they thought of that in a wrong kind of way. Did you see it there in verse 19 and 20? They said, Paul says, if you are sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. Now, all of these things are decent in and of themselves. We need guides. We need light. We need instruction. We need teachers. But Paul is pointing out an arrogant sort of mentality that had come into their mind. I mean, Jesus looked at the church. He looked at his disciples, right? And he said, you are the light of the world. So he says, you know, do your good works before men so that they might see your good works and glorify your father in heaven let your light so shine before men in that kind of way but in another place jesus said i am the light of the world so the appropriate way to broadcast the light of jesus for us is he's the light he shines into our hearts the gospel illuminates our hearts we see the glory of the lord and we fall in love with him we give our lives to him and then in humility, we go into the world and we say, it's not about us, it's about the Lord. He's the one that's amazing and we want to do these good works so that you will celebrate Jesus, the true light, and we're just sort of rebroadcasting the beautiful light of Christ into this world. The arrogant way and the way that Paul is saying the Jewish mentality at his time and in his day that they had clung to was an arrogant way of saying we ourselves are the originators of the light. We are the guides. And it was sort of a looking down upon culture, society, people that are lost and all of that, and celebrating the fact that I am not as they are, for I am a guide, and I am a leader, and I give sight to the blind. And so Paul is saying, you're boasting in your benefits, and you're boasting in your perception about yourself as being higher than the rest of mankind. But here's where they had set themselves up for a real fall in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? Well, you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So the thing that really they were set, set themselves up for is right here, verse 21 to 23, they set themselves up for hypocrisy. You know, putting themselves up on that high pedestal, they set themselves up for a version of hypocrisy partly because they didn't take care of first things first. In other words, they would never teach themselves what they would teach others. They would never abstain from stealing and theft, but they would preach against it. They would never deal with the unfaithfulness of their own heart maritally, but they would cry out against adultery. And they were actually in the process, he says, of robbing temples while also publicly abhorring uh, idols. And all of this is hypocrisy, which is a huge 
sin and something that stumbles the faith of so many uh, people. Now, when Paul says this to these religious people, the first thing that a religious person will think of is they'll, they'll say, no, I don't do those things. And a lot of times they'll think about the external elements. I think on one hand, Paul probably is announcing and he's just sort of outing this religious element and saying, look, I used to be a Pharisee. I used to be a rabbi. I saw the inner workings of religious Israel and I saw actual adultery taking place. I saw actual theft taking place. I saw actual robbing of temples taking place. I saw it. There was the teaching of others, but there was no self-inspection, no saying, Lord, create in me a clean heart. There was none of that. I think Paul, on one hand, is saying, from my experiences, let me tell you what I've seen. But on the other hand, secondarily, we know from the words of Jesus that the law is not just the externals, but the law is spiritual and internal as well. Jesus would say things like, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But then he went on to teach that if you're angry at your brother and you're unable to deal with it and there's just this harboring of of hatred in your heart, then you're guilty of the very same thing. He said, if you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look upon a woman with lust within your heart. So part of the crushing of legalism and religiosity is realizing the law is not just the externals, but it's also the internal. And the tendencies of my heart And when there's anger or greed or lust to be able to say, Lord, I need you to cleanse me. I need you to get inside my heart and to wash me and all of that. But the religious man, the religious woman says, I'm not guilty of these things. I've not done these things. And the self-inspection isn't there, but it's a continual pointing of the finger elsewhere. So what can be done about hypocrisy Uh, according to Paul and the things that he's communicating here. Well, first of all, notice verse 24, the consequence or the result of hypocrisy. He says, for, verse 24, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, that's a quote from the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah had been telling the people of Israel for a very long time. Isaiah had a very long ministry, a lot lot of years of preaching. And he told them for years, decades, he said, look, if you guys don't repent of your sin and your idolatry, the Assyrians are going to come and destroy you in the north. And then a couple of generations later, if you don't repent in the south, the Babylonians are going to come and take you captive here in the south where Jerusalem was uh, located. So what Isaiah said is, and what's going to happen when the Assyrians come and strike you and drive you away from the promised land is that the surrounding nations, the Gentiles, are going to blaspheme the name of God as a result of this. So why would Paul quote that as an example of what happens with hypocrisy? Well, when the people of Israel were scattered, you think there was any Gentile on earth who would say to themselves, I really want that God that the people of Israel have. No, they would just look at a people that were defeated. Their walls were burnt down. They were totally destroyed and taken away captive. And what they might be tempted to say in their hearts is, 
Their God doesn't work. And that's what hypocrisy does. Hypocrisy, as people observe it and watch it, brings the people who are observing so often to a place where they say, I tried him. I tried that God. I tried that message, but I've seen how he doesn't work in people's lives, and so I want to have nothing to do with him. You see, hypocrisy can be a very damaging thing, and this religiosity was actually causing it. So, what is the antidote to hypocrisy? Because it exists, right? It's all around us, and every one of us has a little element of this in our own hearts. That's why Jesus looked at his own disciples. I mean, we think about the disciples, it's like, surely, I mean, not those guys. Hypocrisy, they were a bunch of like ex-fishermen, you know, they weren't wanting to wear the Pharisee robes and phylacteries and go around like the Pharisees blowing trumpets before they gave gifts. They weren't struggling with hypocrisy, right? But Jesus said to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's just a constant temptation for all of us to look a little more spiritual than we really are, to sound a little more holy than we really are, to, to kind of make a little bit more of ourselves than we, than we really truly are. And let's face it, the body of Christ, the church, is a great breeding ground for hypocrisy because it's amongst God's people that we actually value things like reading the Bible, being people of prayer. I mean, if you go to the local bar and you're like, well, I was praying. People aren't like, wow, that's impressive. You know, that's not. But here is the place where a lot of that can happen, where we can sort of give an, an appearance of ourselves that is not entirely legitimate. So what's the antidote to hypocrisy? To hear some people say it, you would think that the antidote to hypocrisy is more hypocrisy. And what I mean by that is that so many people think that the antidote to hypocrisy is perfection, which when you try to strive for that actually leads to more hypocrisy because you cannot attain it. The antidote to hypocrisy is the real legitimate Christian life where you are confessing sin, you are repenting of sin, you are open to correction and learning and instruction. You say, I'm sorry, you say, I handled that incorrectly. That, I think, is the better antidote to hypocrisy than just saying, I must try to be perfect. Listen, if you go to your kids after you've sinned against them and you say, I'm sorry, and I need to repent of that, and would you forgive me, that is far better than acting like you never blew it in the first place. Because that hypocrisy will lead them to begin to despise the God that we worship. And so that's what he's saying there in verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he's pointing out the hypocrisy that is so often bred from the religious man's uh, life. Now, it wasn't just hypocrisy that caused a need for the gospel to come in and save them. There's another sin as well for the religious man. And I think that the way we describe the next section, verse 25 to 29, is uh, that the religious man begins to trust in ceremonies rather than in the cross of Christ. And the ceremony, the big ceremony, or the big external thing 
that the Jews trusted in, uh, as we'll see here in the next few verses, was circumcision. So uh, it was like an outward sign that indicated that they were God's uh, covenant people, okay? So um, I'm making mention of that because if this is your first time here uh, in the church, I don't talk about circumcision every week or anything like that. It's just here we are in the Bible, so you know, just you can just read ahead, and if you're like, I don't really want to talk about that, well, maybe you could podcast it that week or something. But that's, this is where we are uh, in, in the Word, and the big thing that they clung to was uh, circumcision. Now, originally, the way that it worked was that God called a man named Abraham, made promises to Abraham, through your, your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Abraham believed God. We're going to see in chapter four, he believed God, and God said, I see that belief, and I put in your account for that belief, that trust, no work, just belief, I put into your account righteousness because you believed. And then following that, God said, okay, you're mine, you're saved, you belong to me, you're my guy, you believed, you trusted me, you're mine, I'm going to give you something outward that indicates the inward reality of your life. And the outward thing that I'm going to give you and your ancestors is the sign of circumcision, obviously for the men inside the nation of Israel. All right, so the order of events is very important there. It was, we belong to God by faith, and then we receive circumcision. And it is an outward sign that we belong to God. Unfortunately, though, over time in Israel, it turned, they reversed it. And in their mind, they began to think, we're circumcised, therefore we belong to God. There's a ceremony that, we're, that we do, uh, an outward thing that, that we conduct, and when we do it, that's why God accepts us. That's why God uh, embraces us. And I think if we think about this, this is an error that is very common in our modern times. So let's read it together, verse 25 uh, and following. It says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So he's saying, look, if you, you can have all the outward signs, but if there's no inner reality, you can't even obey the law, uh, there's no inner reality, then uh, your, it's all those outward signs become nothing. Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So he says in verse 26, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he, verse 27, who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now, let's just think about what Paul is saying here and realize that Paul had seen this very thing that he's describing thousands of times okay he had come out of being a pharisee come out of being a rabbi come out of the religious establishment come out of judaism and he'd seen people who had like the outfits and the garments and the religious talk and memorized the bible and had seen all the external stuff but their hearts were so dark and then he got struck by Jesus, 
gets the gospel message, believes on the Lord, becomes a changed man, and eventually, some years later, goes out and starts preaching systematically the gospel throughout the whole world. So he's going around from town to town, city to city, and his form was to preach to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And he watched thousands of Gentiles receive Jesus into their lives. And all of a sudden, without any circumcision, without any special holy garments, without any really previous knowledge of God's word or God's truth, no memorization, none of that, he watched these people get electrified by Jesus Christ, get a new nature from Jesus Christ, become born again, and all of a sudden, they start obeying the basics, the necessities of the law of God. These pagan people coming from crazy cultures where it's just, you know, normal, for instance, to go to one of the pagan temples, pay a prostitute, and call it worship. He's watching these people come out of that, and with a new nature, they're now walking with God. And he's looking at them, and he's going, you don't look anything like the religious people that I grew up with and the religious man that I used to be, but the work that has happened inside of your heart is legit. And you're so changed. And so Paul announces, he says, it's like in God's sight, they're circumcised. And the people who think that they have it don't have it, but the ones who didn't have it externally, they have it internally. Just a beautiful thing that Paul had seen and that he's demonstrating. And what we need, of course, is that we'd be born again. You remember when like the mega Pharisee came to Jesus, Nicodemus, the teacher of the nation of Israel. That's what Jesus called him. You're the teacher of Israel. It wasn't a teacher of Israel. It was like, who's the man? Who's the teacher? Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, teacher, rabbi, we know, me and my crew, we know that you have come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless he came from God. So we, from our position, we look down to your position, and we made a determination, there's something about you that came from God. And Jesus flipped it on Nicodemus, and he said, no, you're putting me down here. I belong up here. He looked down at Nicodemus and said, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You think you got it, religious man, but you don't got it. You have to be born again, born of the Spirit. You need the new life put into your heart, put into your life by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason that this is so important is because not only did ancient Jewish religious man trust in outward forms and ceremonies, but this is very common today, to trust in something that you did to save you. And to give you God's favor. I try to preach the gospel all the time. I pray for more clarity to proclaim it better and clearly and more boldly than before. But even in the midst of all of that, I so often will talk to people who think that, just by the way that they're talking, if I'm baptized, maybe I'll be saved then. Or I was baptized when I was a baby, and I think that's when I got saved. Or I prayed... I pray, so I'm saved. Or I read the Bible, so I'm saved. 
or I go to church so I'm saved. And Paul is saying, none of that. None of that gets you salvation. Those religious ceremonies cannot do it inside of your heart. They are things that are to come after, amen? Like circumcision came after for Abraham, so baptism comes after. Reading the Bible, studying it comes after. Prayer comes after. But none of those things earn us the salvation of God. We can only get that by the perfect, precious blood of Jesus Christ. If you think that you could earn the salvation of God by being baptized or by uh, praying a certain way or being confirmed by a certain person or something like that, if you think that salvation comes that way, you do not have a big enough view of who God is. He's so holy and incredible and high that it is only by the blood of his son that we could attain to that great height. So Paul is just saying, I've seen it before, uncircumcised man change so radically that they're able to keep the precepts of the uh, law. 4, verse 29, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So again, born again, an inward thing, a thing of the heart, and uh, by the Spirit. Now, this is really cool. I hope you see this, because he says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And you, if you've heard me preach for any length of time, you know that I'm in the camp of believers who believes wholeheartedly that God made many promises to the nation of Israel, physical Israel, that I believe that God is going to physically fulfill for the people of Israel. So I believe that when you read the Old Testament, there is so much that is yet to be fulfilled, millennial prom promises, kingdom promises that God is going to fulfill for the people of Israel. And when we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, we're going to see, because the question is, well, what about Israel? So we're going to see the answer to that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So you know that I believe that. I think that's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible also seems to teach that there is a ancestry or a heritage that, the, that believers in Christ Jesus have right along with Abraham. Here, the way he says it is, no one is a Jew who is, one, who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly, verse 9, a matter of the heart by the Spirit. But in Galatians 3, this is how he says it there. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are sons, who are the sons of uh, of Abraham. So there's a concept there that tells us that when you have faith, you are identified with believing Abraham and that you're a part of God's covenant people and that in a sense, it's like you're a part of you know, Abraham's family uh, itself, which is a, just a really cool thing because when you read the Old Testament, you realize that's the family to get into. And uh, so to just be able to be born again and to, to be a part of or identified with God's covenant people, that's a beautiful and powerful uh, thing. All right, now the question that we would have that would naturally fr flow from this as we close this out, would be, okay, then verse 1 of chapter 3, what advantage has the Jew? Right? Because we're like talking about this and Paul is just going off saying, that doesn't do anything. You can't be saved that way. 
Uh, it's not by just owning a Bible. It's not by doing some religious ceremony. None of that can save you. So the big question then is, okay, well then, what advantage is it even then to be a Jew in the first place? And he says, what value, verse 1, what is the value of circumcision? And then Paul answers it. So Paul's going to, he's having a conversation with himself, by the way. He's just, there's nobody sitting there. But he's just throwing out questions. He's like, I know what you might ask. And so he throws a question out and he answers it. And he says, here's the advantage. Verse 2, much in every way. So I think a lot of it are the future promises that God is going to fulfill. They had a lot of advantages of being God's covenant people in that way. And then he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, kind of the way that he writes that, it almost sounds like, oh, cool. He's about to give us a big list of all the advantages. Because he's like, much in every way. There's a bunch of them. But there's only, and then he just mentions one, and he moves on. So I think that what he's doing is he's mentioning the big one. The, the, the massive blessing of being one of uh, the people of Israel. And it's very simple. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God. These Bibles that we hold in our hands are so precious. Let us not be a people who forget how beautiful the word of God is and how it is a treasure for us. There are still cultures and people groups here on earth who do not have the Bible translated into their language. We are sitting in a culture, in an environment, English speakers, where there are, I don't know how many versions, maybe a hundred plus versions of the Bible in our native tongue that we can read and discover, and it could be so easy for us to just look down upon it and to despise it, but it's a blessing. All right, so he says that's the really big advantage. They have the word of God, much in every way. They have the word of God. But then he says in verse 3, here's another question that Paul asks. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now that's a good question. Because here you have God and he's made them all these promises. And Paul says, basically, the question is, if they're unfaithful, and if they are faithless before God, then does that mean, kind of like we said earlier, that God doesn't work? Is it legitimate to say, well, look, they were unfaithful, they were faithless, he didn't work for them, he doesn't work? Is, it, is that a legitimate claim uh, to make? Now, before answering that, we have to think about what does it mean to be unfaithful or faithless? Really, there are two major versions of that in the Bible. There's unbelief, which means a lack of trust or faith in the Lord. And then there's faithlessness, which you might put a different word, disobedience. You are unfaithful to your relationship with God. And the people of Israel, historically, just like us, just like us, <laughs> were guilty so often of both. Uh, they had many moments of 
unfaithfulness, the disobedience version of a lack of faith, didn't they? And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, what were the big three? Here's a little quiz. What were the big three that they were so often unfaithful or disobedient to God in? I think that probably the big three, if you read the book of Nehemiah, there was just a repetitive big three that they kept coming back to. And it was very simple. They They would marry people that God had said you're not allowed to marry. So they'd get in bed with people they weren't allowed to get in bed with. So uh, marriage with or sexual relationship with the pagan nations. Number two, they wouldn't keep the Sabbath requirements that God had given to them as a nation. So every seven days, that's a holy day to the Lord. Uh, Every seven years, the land has a time of rest. And various other Sabbath requirements that God gave to them, they didn't want to keep those. And we can understand the temptation. Why? Uh, because it was, there was a financial pressure and just, you know, working that seventh day made a lot more sense in the short run. Than, and so that's what they wanted to do and were tempted to do it. And then the third one was the withholding of the, the tithes that God had required from the people of Israel. Those were usually the big three that got them into other various forms of trouble that branched out from those big three. But disobedience. And then unfaithfulness, that's a lack of trust in the Lord. So send 12 spies into the promised land. They come back. The two spies say, let's go do this. God said we could have it. It belongs to us. Yeah, there's really big dudes that live there. But God's on our team, and he's decided to judge these nations for all of their idolatry. So let's go. And then 10 spies saying, no, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And the people of Israel saying, yeah, those guys, we agree with that argument. That's unbelief. That's a lack of faith. Don't you and I demonstrate both of those all the time? It happens, right? A lack of obedience or a lack of trust in the Lord. But religiosity breeds that even more. And the question is, when that happens... Uh, does that mean that God, is, it nullifies him, it nullifies his faithfulness? Let's read Paul's answer, verse 4. By no means. Let God be true, even though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul quotes from two psalms there. Uh, in Psalm 116, everyone, though everyone were a liar, God is true. And Psalm 51, verse 4, that you would be justified in your words. When God is put on the stand, he is found pure, innocent, and uh, justified. So here's the answer that Paul gives. No matter how unfaithful God's people are, God is faithful. So that's partly the answer to hypocrisy because God works. God works. God is effective. God is strong. God is powerful. God is beautiful. And if there is a flaw, it is not in him. The faithlessness of his people, we might be unfaithful, but God, every time he's effective, every time he works, every time he is true and righteous and good. So I think that helps us in so many ways because for many of us, there are concepts about the Lord, there are truths about God, there are commands that he's given to us as his people that we hesitate on whether to put them to the test or not. We say, I don't know if that's going to work. 
but we should be a people who say God works and God is faithful and God is effective. So Paul is saying, no, the, the unfaithfulness of God's people does no discredit to God. He is not diminished at all. But then he says this, verse 5, as we close this out. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, verse 7, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation, Paul says about them, saying that about him and his tribe, their condemnation is just. All right, now here's the thing that Paul is bringing up. You got unfaithful people, but God is faithful still. But this whole thing that he's laying out, he's like, okay, immoral mankind, chapter one. Moral mankind, chapter two. Religious mankind, chapter two and three. In all three groups, the unfaithfulness and the unrighteousness of all three groups, you know what it brings more color to? It brings more color to God's righteousness, right? So like last week, I think in some of the services, I don't think I mentioned it in all of them, but I mentioned like the black cloth backdrop to the beautiful diamond, right? And when you put that backdrop, you can see the vibrancy and the color of the diamond a little more effectively. And the concept here is that as you're seeing like the depravity, the brokenness of the world in all three of those categories, when you're seeing that and observing it, it's like what you then see even more beautifully than before is God's righteousness, Here's how broken everything is. Oh, God, you're so perfect. You're powerful, beautiful, flawless. We're in a flawed world through and through. Whether we're religious or immoral or whatever, we're so flawed, you are flawless. And so the question is, well, hey, it's through our flaw and our unrighteousness that we're able to see God's flawlessness and righteousness even more so maybe it's wrong for God to judge us for our unrighteousness because it actually brings out how awesome he is. And we might look at that argument and be like, that is a ridiculous argument. And it is. That's why Paul says things like, by no means, you know. I mean, his whole thing is, how could God then judge the world? If he's not able to be against it now, how can he be against it in the future? So since he will be in the future, of course he's going to be against it now. But I don't think it's as ridiculous of an argument as we might think. It, or not maybe ridiculous isn't the right word because it is ridiculous. I don't think it's as rare of an argument as we might think. Like, for instance, the prophet Jeremiah, when he wrote Lamentations, he said a beautiful thing. He said, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. All right, we cling to that promise, it's beautiful. But I think we need to confess there's a right way to quote that and a wrong way to quote that. The right way to quote that is to say, Lord, I'm growing. I'm in the process of being sanctified. My desire is to be like Jesus, but I am so not there yet. So 
in these failures of mine and in these weaknesses of mine, I confess them to you, I repent of them, and these are strongholds in my life that I want to get victory over. So I'll bring them to my friends and I'll bring them to you in prayer and I'll apologize and repent and say I'm sorry and I'll move forward and I'll invite light and accountability into my life because I want to progress. But I'm, that's all it is. It's just progress and sanctification in you. So praise God. Your mercies, they're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, thank you. But the wrong way to quote it then would be the converse to say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to live with who I want to live with, sleep who I want to sleep with, spend how I want to spend. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm thankful because his mercies are new every morning. So he's watching me do all this stuff, but praise God, his mercies are new every morning. Wouldn't we say that's an, that's an inaccurate Wrong way to say, praise God, the, mer- the mercies of God are new every morning. We reject that, amen? And that's what, that was kind of this argument. As I do it, it's like God gets another chance to forgive me. So it's awesome, you know? It just keeps sinning, so it's like just more grace and forgiveness. It's just beautiful. Uh, my dad used to call this sloppy agape. Uh, that was kind of his way of referring to it. So, you know, this is, a, this is a thing that Paul just says, no, that's not a right mentality. It's not a right uh, heart for us. And uh, so just getting that out of our system and inviting more and more just a gospel-saturated, cross-of-Christ-saturated heart to come in to our uh, being. So in the face of all of this, this is the beautiful thing. God doesn't look at the world in Romans 1, 2, and 3 and say, yeah, you know, you're, ki- you're like kind of wrong. He just says, you're just wrong. All the way, all the way wrong. But I have not dismissed you. I have loved you. I have not said, I'm done with you. I've said, I want to enjoy you and for you to enjoy me for all of eternity. So I sent my son to bring in a righteousness that you could not bring in for yourself. And he died on the cross for you so that we might be able to live forever with God. Just beautiful, the love of God. It's so strong. It's highlighted by all of this darkness. So, Father, this morning, we are just so thankful for your love toward us, your kindness toward us, your compassion toward us. And, Lord, any religious part of us, Lord, that has just got to go, we want to surrender it, Lord, to you this morning. But... Father, we pray that you just would grow our hearts in our understanding, Lord, of your love and your grace, your kindness, your mercy. And we thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to come and rescue us, to live a perfect life on our behalf, because clearly, as we've already seen, none of us can or will or ever have. And to die in our place upon the cross, taking in the wrath for us, being punished for us. So we trust in you, Lord. We believe in you alone 
for the cleansing and the washing of our sin, taking away unrighteousness and ungodliness and giving us the righteousness of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for your love. Some of you might be here this morning. You need the love of God to come into your life. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants you so badly, but the thing in between you and him is your sin. He still wants to deal with it. You've got to be cleansed from it. You have to have it wiped away, and it's only wiped away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody here this morning, it's time for you to let the love of God get into your heart by letting Jesus forgive you of your sin. He died for you. He loves you. And he rose from the dead for you. Is there anybody here this morning and you know that it's time for you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? If that's you, could you raise your hand right where you are this morning and say, that's me, I want to give my life and heart to Jesus Christ. God bless you, brother, I see you. Is there anybody else this morning? Perhaps even you identified with a religious man, you've trusted in some ceremony, trust it no longer. And trust Jesus Christ alone. Is there anybody else this morning you'd say, that's me. I want to give my heart and life to Jesus Christ. All right, brother, you just in your heart, man, you cry out like this. You say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place upon the cross. Thank you for raising him from the grave for me. That I could be new just as he became resurrected. I trust him alone to make me right with you. Be my Savior and be my Lord. And help me now to live a life for you that brings you honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.